We all wish we had the time to sit down and read all about Bitcoin, but we can listen almost anywhere. So let me read it for you. This is a Crypto Economy Quick Read. Welcome back to the Crypto Economy, guys. I am Guy Swan, your host, and we are doing some reading today. Uh, a really awesome piece that I've been uh, eager to get to. Another one by Tur de Meester. We've read a number of different things by him on the show. And from Adamant Capital. Uh, and if you have not read it, uh, this is going to be a really, really fun one. Um, it's called The Bitcoin Reformation. And uh, anybody who knows Tur, he's made a lot of great historical parallels um, to uh, Bitcoin, to previous technologies and the discovery of, you know, oil and a bunch of these other things. Uh, and we're going to get all into it with this piece. We will be reading uh, roughly half of it today and then we'll be uh, finishing it out tomorrow. But without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into our report from Adamant Capital by Tur de Meester. The Bitcoin Reformation Introduction At the end of the 16th century, a ragtag group of rebel intellectuals and entrepreneurs founded a country on some of the least desirable land in Europe, so often flooded that it needed hundreds of miles of moats while fighting an 80-year-long war against the largest empire in the world. From this struggle and melting pot of ideas emerged the Dutch and British Golden Ages, innovative economic institutions that changed the world, as well as one of America's most successful socioeconomic experiments, New York City. This report makes the case that the 21st century emergence of Bitcoin, encryption, the internet, and millennials are more than just trends. They herald a wave of change that exhibits similar dynamics as the 16th and 17th century revolution that took place in Europe. Some of the conclusions our report suggests. Bitcoin tolerance versus intolerance to become a major political fault line. Bitcoin's primary drivers will be in saving, lending, and underwriting. Collaborative custody to become an industry standard. Offshore banking may transform into Bitcoin banking. Bitcoin to mature quickly. Bonds, annuities, loans, and insurance. Initial exchange offerings, or IEOs, expected to stay and grow larger. Bitcoin savers could accelerate a revolution in the history of thought. 1. The past as key to the present. A note on method. As an investor and analyst, I aim to identify socioeconomic trends and predict how they will evolve. I read, curate, and share. I separate signal from noise by listening to experts who I think have integrity. And yet, a major challenge remains in that secular trends often are clearly identifiable only in hindsight. The solution, I believe, is identifying parallel historic perspectives. In order to reduce my chances of remaining a trend-blind contemporary, I study history in the broad sense. As I read history books and papers, I'm on the lookout to find parallels and symmetries with present-day trends. In doing so, I stretch my mind to consider dynamics that I hadn't previously, and am able to hypothesize about causalities that were previously inconceivable to me. I believe this improves my ability to assign probabilities to certain outcomes, which in turn allows me to strategize my investments and entrepreneurial endeavors in a more rational way. In the past, I've drawn parallels between Bitcoin and the early petroleum industry, the search engine wars, the domain name markets, the growth of peer-to-peer -peer file sharing, and internet protocols. But I kept feeling that I was failing to fundamentally grasp 
the magnitude of the epoch in which Bitcoin functions as a catalyst. It wasn't until I studied the era around the Protestant Reformation that I felt I'd found a potential blueprint of sufficient scope. I hope you enjoy reading this report as much as I did researching it. Sincerely, Turdemeester. Quote, Whoever wishes to foresee the future must consult the past, for human events ever resemble those of preceding times. This arises from the fact that they are produced by men who ever have been and ever will be animated by the same passions, and thus they necessarily have the same result. End quote. Niccolo Machiavelli, 1517. Two, four preconditions of a reformation. We believe there are four conditions that enabled the Protestant Reformation, and we think those same four preconditions are present today. A painful status quo in the form of a monopoly service provider, technological catalysts for change, a new economic class, incredible defense and exit strategies for rebels. Rent-seeking monopolistic service provider. In the 2002 paper, An Economic Analysis of the Protestant Reformation, it is argued that the Catholic Church was a monopolistic provider of spiritual services, and that the control that religious authorities had over portions of the legal system provided them with the market power to exclude rivals. For centuries, the Catholic Church exercised a highly regarded gatekeeper function. It controlled the keys to heaven by a forgiveness of sin, typically provided by priests. The authors of the paper argue that, quote, if the religious monopoly overcharges, it risks two forms of entry. A, the common citizenry may choose other dispensers of religious services, and B, the civil authorities may seek a different provider of legal services, end quote. And this is indeed what happened during the Reformation. In present day, the monopolistic service provider whose rent-seeking is being questioned is the International Monetary and Financial System, the IMFS. Since the 1944 Bretton Woods Agreement, the U.S. dollar has enjoyed the exorbitant privilege of being the world's reserve currency. Similar to the Catholic Church in the 16th century, financial authorities' control over portions of the legal system provides them with the market power to exclude rivals. In addition, the fiat-settled banking system has a gatekeeper function, where it controls the keys to the wealth and pensions of the world's citizenry. In the current environment of quantitative easing, negative interest rates, and currency wars, the banking monopoly is arguably overcharging for its services. Customers are paying the inflation tax, which means it risks two forms of entry. A, the common citizenry may choose other dispensers of financial services, and B, the civil authorities may seek a different provider of financial services. In other words, given more adoption, we may see political entities embrace Bitcoin as a full-fledged money for all legal purposes. Quote, Temporary levies became permanent, and many new taxes were imposed on the wealthiest church members. Church documents reveal that sons and grandsons of heretics had to pay up for the sins of their fathers. The souls of deceased relatives could be extricated from purgatory for fees. End quote. The Marketplace of Christianity, page 117. Technological Revolution, Catalyst for Change. In the 16th century, several world changing inventions gained meaningful adoption. The printing press lowered the cost of a book from a year's labor to the price of a chicken. Double-entry bookkeeping accelerated international commerce. Compass and hourglass improvements allowed for returning from unmapped territory, which unlocked world exploration. 
and the boom in scientific research led to the advancement of yet more inventions. In the late 20th and early 21st century, several inventions have brought about a digital revolution. Telecommunications and email allow for working remotely. The commoditization of computation and data storage massively lowers infrastructure overhead, which allows for startup costs to decline. Open source software provides entrepreneurs with robust and free building tools. Cryptography opens up a suite of defensive technologies for permissionless security solutions. And social media allows for rapid and non-bureaucratic dissemination of information. Chart. In 15th century Europe, quote, the raw price of books fell by 2.4% a year for over a hundred years, end quote while the share of university courses on scientific subjects rose from 25% to 40%. Chart. The price of one megabit per second internet connection dropped by 99% in 20 years, from nearly $100,000 to under $10. New Economic Class People with something to fight for. During the 16th and 17th centuries, maritime trade throughout Europe improved and grew significantly. Flowing all the way from Switzerland to the British Channel, the Rhine River was a major artery for trade, and the cities of the lowlands were natural beneficiaries of being located at the mouth of it. Intercontinental shipping took off as well, primarily with the spice trade between Asia and Europe. The increased volume of trade amplified the impact of technological innovation, and port cities with good rule of law saw a rise in specialized industries like painting, fabrics, book printing, weaponry, tapestry, schooling, and medicine. The specialists at the top of these industries could solicit business from all across Europe, as a result of increased trade, technological innovation, and intense specialization, overall wealth increased and the relative contribution of agriculture to the economy diminished, which weakened the wealth of landlords and churches in favor of the new merchant class. Today, class systems in the West are less defined. However, we do believe that certain parts of the population are much more change-oriented than others. The millennial generation, in particular, has a distinct skepticism towards traditional finance and enthusiastically embraces digital innovation. A 2016 survey by Facebook found that only 8% of millennials, quote, trust financial institutions for guidance, end quote, and that 45% are, quote, ready to switch if a better option comes along, end quote. Furthermore, a survey by the Transamerica Center for Retirement Services suggests that 76% of millennials believe that, quote, compared to my parents' generation, our generation will have a much harder time in achieving social security, end quote, and 79% are also, quote, Concerned that when I am ready to retire, Social Security won't be there for me. End quote. Aside from being the most invested in the Bitcoin economy, millennials as a cohort are expected to control the largest share of disposable income by 2029. Quote, Generally, those from Antwerp are splendid and very rich merchants, eager to emulate the strangers audacious and capable of trading anywhere in the world, end quote. Guicciardini, 1612. Quote, the new millennial, or birth year cutoff of 1996, is important because it points to a generation that is old enough to have experienced and comprehended 9-11 while also finding their way through the 2008 recession as young adults, end quote. Pew Research. 2018. Credible Strategies for Defense and Escape 
Even with superior economics on his side and with significant wealth, a citizen will be a lot less tempted to oppose a domineering status quo if he doesn't also have credible strategies for both defense and escape. It was no coincidence that the Dutch Revolt lasted 80 years, longer than any other uprising in modern European history. The, quote, sea beggars were undisputed masters of water. In 1573, the Dutch successfully defended against the siege of Alkmaar by flooding the surrounding fields. They also wiped out a critical Spanish supply line using flooding. A year later, the same tactic saved the town of Leiden, the Dutch nucleus of education, from another Spanish attack. The western core of the Dutch Republic was protected by a, quote, water line, a string of fortified villages close enough to allow for optic communication with surrounding lands that could be flooded in a matter of hours. And because of easy access to the North Sea and a large fleet, there were the fallback options of immigration to the British Isles, or, as the 17th century came around, venturing to the New World. In the 21st century, the defensive technological suite available for people who question the economic status quo is cryptography, which can enable privacy and protection from asset seizure. Today, encryption is very widely used. For example, the application of HTTPS on the web grew from 13% in 2014 to 77% in 2018. However, encryption defeats the purpose of privacy if the service provider can be backdoored. We therefore see an increased interest in digital self-sovereignty, with millennials adopting Bitcoin and showing interest in projects such as VPN, Blockstack, Wi-Fi mesh networks, Tor, Signal, Purism, U2F or Universal Two-Factor, PGP, and so forth. Quote, if conquering the other towns takes as much time as the ones we've already subjugated, there isn't time or money enough in the world to overpower the 24 towns which are rebelling in Holland. End quote. Spanish commander Don Luis de Requenzins, 1574. Quote, Cryptology represents the future of privacy, and by implication, the future of money and the future of banking and finance. Given the choice between intersecting with a monetary system that leaves a detailed electronic trail of all one's financial activities and a parallel system that ensures anonymity and privacy, people will opt for the latter. Moreover, they will demand the latter. End quote. Orlin Grabe, 1995. Doctrines, Then and Now one intuitive parallel between the Protestant Reformation and now are the doctrines which reflected the very essence of the rebellion. They were the cause of unity and conviction, and we see similar unifying doctrines today. In the 16th century, the principal doctrine of the Lutheran Reformation was summarized with the words sola fide, which translates to faith alone. This phrase encapsulated the idea that for access to heaven, believers didn't need a priest anymore. Their faith and devotion alone would suffice. Another common call of the Reformation was sola scriptura, or by scripture alone, which signified the rejection of any original infallible authority other than the Bible. In the Bitcoin space today, there are several battle cries that tend to be dismissed as memes. In our view, they reflect a rebellious essence that could herald a modern-day reformation. A first is vires in numeris, which stands for strength in numbers. The spirit of this creed was summarized by Tyler Winklevoss in an often quoted line, quote, We have elected to put our money and faith in a mathematical framework that is free of politics and human error, end quote. Another motto used by Bitcoiners is, don't trust, verify. This phrase has been around since the 1990s and may have started as a twist on Ronald Reagan's 
trust but verify. It encourages users to independently verify the integrity of new open source software, and in the case of Bitcoin, to verify the validity of transactions on the blockchain. A forum post from 2013 originated the word HODL, which now refers to the commitment to the self-sovereign act of holding onto one's, quote, stash of Bitcoin, no matter the volatility. Finally, there's the mantra, not your keys, not your Bitcoin, which refers to the lack of trust in third-party custodians. Quote, The whole idea of having an independent currency, rather than just more private or censorship-resistant payments for existing currencies, didn't exist among either cypherpunks or academic cryptographers until libertarian futurists introduced it. End quote. Nick Zabo, 2019. Part 3. Financial Economy During a Reformation. All right, we're going to go ahead and stop this piece right here. We're just under halfway through it, but we kind of change gears from the like social ideas of the Reformation and a revolution happening to the financial side of it. So I think this is a good place to actually break it up. Um, and uh, let's go ahead and hit our sponsor, and then let's dig into this a little bit. Again, this was a report from Adamant Research, uh, written by Turtemeister, and uh, titled The Bitcoin Reformation. I'm excited to get into the second part tomorrow, all about financials and stuff. And, you know, we've talked a number of times on this show about, you know, technologies as a catalyst for revolution or like significant change throughout society. And, you know, my general perspective is that typically the, uh, the technology is itself the catalyst that makes the change in the people in the society and all of those things. But at the same time, you're also looking at a situation where from a uh, historical standpoint, pressures build over time. And uh, often that leads to the technologies that actually kind of release that social and cultural pressure that's, you know, that's essentially uh, in high demand for some sort of significant change in society. And this is a great example of the, the church being the monopoly force of both law and spiritual uh, authority, essentially. And I had always, it was always a, the frame of reference in my mind uh, that it was really the printing press that made um, the shift. And that's just kind of from my, my vague history. Like, like, I'd never really dug into specifics about it outside of just um, seeing the, the broad correlation and understanding the, the causality of uh, uh, the simple cause and effect of, you know, you, you utterly change the price and availability of information of people being able to... Uh, people being able to have their own Bible and rather than trust a priest or a church authority of some sort that they can read it for themselves. But um, I had never, I never knew what the price difference was. Like I'd always heard uh, no specifics, but I'd always known that books were incredibly expensive. Like to read and write was considered a very elite, like high society thing. Like it just, the normal person just did not, that was just not part of their reality. Um, and books were incredibly expensive, but the, the statistic that he put with the, um, with the chart that, uh, also shows kind of shows the decline. And, uh, that's basically like a logarithmic chart. When you actually go look at it, it looks like a like kind of reasonable decline, but you'll notice that it's actually orders of magnitude over on the left side of the chart. So if you go check out, if you download this full piece, there is a number of other things, um, lots of references, um, our footnotes to dig deeper if you actually want to read something um, where he got a lot of this information and uh, some of the charts or whatever uh, are also really, really good. Um, so, uh, but that the cost of a book was a year's labor and that it fell to the price of a chicken over that century is the most extraordinary statistic I have ever heard. I had no idea that it was that high. I'm thinking, when I'm thinking the cost of a book was expensive 
and I guess it makes sense. Like, I mean, how long would it take for someone, someone who already is in, you know, the elite or is in, uh, is considered an incredibly high um, uh, skill set to have to be able to read and write, plus the amount of time that it takes to write the book, um, and uh, and after having written the book, you've still only got one book. Like, you have to rewrite the book. <laughs> Uh, a second time to get two copies of this book. So, uh, and that's that's one of the ways that the the, the church actually had a chokehold on the ideology, on like like priest authority, and the authority of the church was so powerful because you had to ask a priest what the hell was in the Bible. Like like they were basically nobody had their own version of this thing to reference the only thing that they could reference was the church was the the spiritual authority of their day but just on the just on the technology side of it just while we're talking about catalysts um i uh, i like the other things that he brought up was um uh, uh international commerce that was accelerated because of double entry bookkeeping I don't even think I realized that double entry bookkeeping actually came from this same era, um, which is uh, crazy. And I'm surprised it's actually not mentioned um, in the very next paragraph during the technological revolution section here, but that Bitcoin is the first um, consensus mechanism for a triple entry bookkeeping system. So we actually have a, a sharp parallel between the, the invention and um widespread adoption or uh, application of double entry bookkeeping uh, to the uh, widespread adoption and application of triple entry bookkeeping uh, in the in the Bitcoin age. Um, and I love that I'll link to here. Let me go ahead and write that down before I forget. I'll link to the piece on uh, Bitcoin is an accounting revolution, I believe it is, um, all about the triple entry bookkeeping history and uh, uh, that kind of stuff. It's a really it's a really great piece. Okay, but then the uh, then he also talks about the compass and the hourglass improvements um, that allowed traversing of unmapped territory of completely unknown areas and essentially being able to find your way back, um, and which unlocked world exploration and increased trade across all sorts of barriers that were breaking down, um, and that's another great example of just cyberspace in general that when there are huge barriers between markets or um, from exiting a system or um, competing with a system, which he goes into a little bit more later on, uh, but when these, when these huge barriers exist and they're finally broken down, it creates an explosion in an exchange of ideas, um, both through just like trade of, of different goods um, of different systems and in integration of all of these things, you suddenly have an entire different culture and perspective to essentially pull information from or to collaborate with, in a sense, which we did on an economic scale or on a global scale. And we are definitely seeing the parallel today with um, the destruction of those barriers. I mean, just look at what's possible from 15 years ago, um, the the ability to work remotely. Um, I mean, Bitcoin is a is a perfect example. Silicon Valley has always been a perfect example um, during its its growth phases. The number of people that are literally working, uh, like like freelance stuff that happens, like even with small startups, getting getting your your initial um, like infrastructure, your your foundation of a company or something off the ground that you can just hire somebody from. India on Fiverr or, you know, one of these, one of these freelance websites to code up an app or, um, put together a website or something that you can get the base foundation without ever hiring anybody, essentially like, like you're doing small contract work to piece together everything for the beginnings of your company. And I'm kind of in that position right now. Like I'm, I'm reaching out and doing those things cause I need to outsource more of my work here. Um, at the crypto economy because I've, I've just done it all myself up to now. And, um, uh, but it's fascinating that like I can have access and talk to all of these people that 10, even 10 years ago would have been hopeless for me as an individual. Like, um, like the whole process of sourcing all of the, um, the people and uh, finding the networks to talk to and communicate with would have been an entirely different process. 
and the destruction of those barriers by technology uh, are absolutely creating a new parallel economy. That's why I call this the crypto economy, because there is genuinely an entirely new space opening up, an entirely new way of finding financial freedom and sovereignty, a sovereignty, uh, an entirely new way to interact and organize people and networks into a project. I mean, just look at the incredible amount of work that has come out of the open source uh, ethos, the, the, the whole open source society that has been growing since the late 80s and 90s. Um, I mean, look what that has produced. That's literally the backbone of the internet. Um, more than more than half the phones are run on uh, uh, forks of open source software, and there's a massive amount of and, and this is what we're doing now with the like TCP/IP is open source. The foundation of the internet itself is open source software, and uh, the and look at what we're doing with the financial system. Look at the parallel that we have now with Bitcoin. Software is literally eating the world, and open source software seems to have the network effects and the ability to pull people in with a common, uh, I guess, ideology or like a mission, like a goal out of like solving ex a, a very specific set of problems, and then the ability to coordinate so many different people and so many um, uh, different perspectives towards one end. Uh, is really remarkable. Uh, the The iterative capital thesis right now is one of the best, is still the best that I have read uh, that kind of breaks down the whole ideology and everything behind that. I guess I'll, I guess I'll put that in the show notes too. Uh, iterative capital. Um, it's the, what's driving the cryptocurrency phenomenon. And uh, it's, an, it's a very long piece. It, it's basically an audio book. Um, I think the whole thing was like four hours long, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but it's a brilliant piece breaking down the the um, separation, which is very, it's very in line. It's analogous to kind of what we're talking about here. Like uh, the third point that he brings up during the um, parallels to the Reformation is um, a new economic class. And I think that's very, very uh, deeply tied in with the conflict between the managerial uh, class and the engineering class that has happened in uh, that happened in the from the 40s and 50s in the corporate structure how uh, the engineers would basically diverge from the the goals and the intents of the managerial class that would essentially want to constantly pump out features to to have the perception of looking productive but creates all of this technical debt and this led to the kind of division between uh, these two classes that ultimately led to the open source movement and uh, led to the divergence of those two economies, so to speak. And then during the uh, the explosion of open source software and uh, kind of through the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, there's been this reemergence in trying to uh, balance between these two like highly controlled hierarchical structures and these open and uh, I guess you could say inclusive and kind of more free floating structures. Uh, they're, they're not quite the high, the managerial hierarchies that the corporate structure has been. Uh, they're very different, and everybody's trying to like create these these mixes between the two and to get it to work. Um, but it's but it's forced a lot of change in how businesses are set up, how decisions are made in productive enterprise, and I think we're going to continue to see this evolve over the next twenty or thirty thirty years. And um, uh, I think Bitcoin is going to play another massive role in the in the continuance of this shift. And uh, you know, I don't I don't think this will be over for another. 30 to 50 years, I don't think we'll, we'll be able to solidly say we're on the other side of this massive change that we are going through until that time. And when, uh, like the first point that he brings up in this piece about the rent-seeking monopolistic service provider, it's, it's funny the, the number of parallels that we have with our monetary system, that not only is this a strict like global monetary authority in the sense that it, it is a straight monopoly um, and that if you're 
if you're any studier of history and of uh, like political decisions and you kind of veer outside of the whole mainstream narrative, it seems so painfully clear that so much of the war and uh, conflict between nations, even though it's hidden behind this political facade of these silly little things or, or these sort of made up, sort of, uh, sometimes just blatantly invented narratives, um, but that uh, underlying all of this, the real tensions are in currency, uh, currency wars. So not only in that aspect is the monetary system literally a, a monopoly being enforced on uh, uh, nations all around the world um, through either threats of you know trade embargoes and outright warfare, but also it is a very religious trap in the same way. Like it has the religious foundations in people's minds that the dollar is money and it doesn't have to be, it, it's backed by the dollar in people's minds. Like that network effect and the default assumption that this is what money is, is as powerful as a religiously held belief. Um, and it's kind of as empty as most religious beliefs are. It's just a matter of, well, this is what it is, so obviously that's what it is. Like, like it's, a, it's a circular argument uh, in and of itself is that like, well, it's backed by the promises of the United States. It's like, well, what the hell does that mean? Promises of what? It's like, well, the United States. It's like, what the, what the hell is the United States? Like, like, that's not a concrete thing that you can pull resources from. Like, like, it's an idea in and of itself. Like, it is genuinely just a belief system. Uh, like, there's no specific building that is the government and there is no specific set of people that is the government or the United States. Like, it's just the people who are within it believing and operating as though this abstraction is, in fact, the truth. Um, and our currency is incredibly reliant on that. Like, if, if that belief fell away, well, then a lot of our systems wouldn't work. And it's not simply, it is only because of that belief there's a really great section in The Sovereign Individual um, uh, about that exact thing, actually, is that belief in the system is actually what keeps the system running because um, as soon as you start to entertain ideas outside of that structure, you realize the structure is entirely dependent on the fact that everybody is believing and operating as if it is true. But it is totally architected from the independent decisions of millions of people who simply believe that these imaginary boundaries are exactly the same for everyone. Uh, and so many problems arise from the conflict in understanding where those boundaries are um, and in, in the fact that those boundaries become immoral because we don't understand how to apply them and they just get, they just get abused by the, the roles that are basically in the position to define them. But my point here is that this is an incredibly religious thing. Like this is this is very much a belief system. Like the idea that there are like specific borders around different like like some specific group of people. Like if you actually go out there, there's no there's no actual line. Like like it's only on the map. It, it is totally made up in our heads that there are all these borders between people. And, um, and it is only because everybody within operate under the same superstition, really. Um, it's like we, we all have the exact same superstition. That's a, uh, there's a piece by, who, who, who wrote that book? Larkin, Larkin Rose, Larkin Rose um, wrote The Most Dangerous Superstition. Really, really interesting perspective on uh, government institutions and the idea of authority. Um, uh, I highly recommend that one, actually. I've forgotten about that book. I hadn't thought about that in a while. So the current monetary system not only holds like an economic chokehold, an economic monopoly um, in its position, but I think it also holds a powerful ideological monopoly. Um, like, like, like to tell somebody that like most people dismiss Bitcoin literally for the simple idea, for the simple fact that it's not the dollar. 
Um, and like that is that is enough of a reason for them. Like like the dollar doesn't need an excuse or does not need an explanation for why it's money, and Bitcoin does. And when you have in the whole an entire population that has no foundations for understanding what money is or isn't, it's just it is simply the dollar in their minds, and and it's so it's so in intertwined into everything that we do that there's there's not even the beginnings of understanding what the hell it is that we're actually using um uh without that foundation well then there's nothing it is totally based on authority it is totally based on the fact that the dollar is already in that position and uh bitcoin is just this silly digital thing that uh is to be outright and immediately dismissed I think it only ta- it it requires a a lot of study and understanding, and more importantly, requires it requires questioning the belief that is already there, and that's the hardest part. And I think that's the same. I think that's the same religious challenge that um, was b- based in the uh, in the Reformation. Is that it was it had to be okay to question the religious authority. Like, that had to happen first. Like they had to start questioning the current religious authority in order to have their own, um, their own conclusions, to, to reach their own idea, their uh, sola fide, uh, the faith alone. Um, they, had to, they had to spread their own ideas about what religion was, about what faith was. They had to change where they sourced their understanding. And the printing press was the tool that uh, got them out of that, 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 that pushed the envelope in that sense. And the, I love the, the whole new economic class. Like that's the, that's the third piece he gets into or the third um, parallel that he gets into. And uh, the millennial generation is a, and the whole, the whole crypto economic revolution that we're in the midst of uh, and the, the explosion of a global market, like we just talked about this with the whole breaking down of the barriers, like there is a massive global market. We are so intertwined, like economically, because of the internet now. It's truly, truly unprecedented from a historical context. Uh, I think any, I think that's why, um, e- even outside of nations investing in each other and holding each other's treasuries and all of this stuff outside of even like the macro stuff, the, the lower economies, the, the middle class and the lower class are so interconnected now in at every stage that I think if, if we're not seeing that there is truly a global, uh, a borderless jurisdiction, dictionless economy that is slowly like swallowing up everything, um, then we're totally missing the picture. And those the the millennial surveys that he talks about um, that he brings up in this um, are also really powerful because I think I think this generation, um, the generation that's grown up since the mid '90s, is going to have a completely different expectation of what they should have access to, um, and uh, what is trustworthy. Like all the default assumptions of kind of the boomer generation is are simply not going to be there. And I think Bitcoin is going to play a major role in that because uh, this generation has also dealt with digital currency in some form or some form or other um, uh, throughout their life, uh, and and it's not totally it's not really foreign to them, and and they have they have experienced it in a purely digital sense, mostly through gaming. That is a big part of having something that's actually valuable. Um, that is in that is in fact purely digital. I mean, it was not that is it is absolutely a very new phenomenon to have an actual market where like a good friend of mine actually played uh, what was it Final Fantasy eleven? Is that the one that was all online? I ask like somebody's gonna answer me right now. Um, uh, one of those one of the Final Fantasies that was just totally an online world, you know, MMORPG, all that good stuff. Uh, uh, he played this game in, in just constantly and would sell weapons 
and um, like leading th people through, you know, certain tasks and stuff. And he made an, a phenomenal amount of money, like tens of thousands of dollars doing this as a, as a job. Like, like this was his entire, his entire work at the time. And he's in like high school and college um, uh, during this. And, um, but this was his, this was his position. He lived and produced purely in a digital economy, a totally made up digital economy, essentially. And that is, that is, this is the first generation that's really been so, so incredibly exposed to that. And markets, like external markets for games like that are actually becoming huge. I mean, obviously World of Warcraft was another one. He was very into that one as well. But our generation knows these things. Like these, these are kind of like obvious realities. But my parents would still be, if I explain that to them, even though they've heard that and they've been explained it many, many times before, still do not grasp how that could be possible. That's still incredibly strange to them. And when I think about it, it's not even, it's not even remotely bizarre. Um, it's a cool thing to tell people, but that's about it. Like, it, it's not weird for me. And the, and the statistic that 80% are concerned that when they retire, Social Security won't be there. Um, and, like, I'm absolutely in that 80%. I think to, for me to depend even $10 worth of value on Social Security, I think is a joke. Um, I, I, think, I think it's going to be dead before I make it to my 40s. Uh, and uh, without without a doubt, like like the idea of me of social security being a safety net is is literally laughable to me. Like that's just a, a completely idiotic statement from like from if I'm talking to somebody in like a boomer generation, like it's hard not to giggle when somebody implies that I'm I'm safe in my future because of social security is the absolute dumbest thing ever. And the fact that eighty percent actually of millennials of this generation actually believe that was a little shocking to me because I thought a lot more people bought into the social safety net is always going to be there uh, thing. So, uh, and I guess that's, you know, somebody who's old enough to live through the 2008 financial crisis kind of knows that this is all built on house of cards. Like the, the, this whole thing is really a sham that um, uh, it's going to go up in flames. Like there is no, there is no strong foundation for this, and I think it's very, very obvious to anybody who is not working really, really, really hard to not look at it um, objectively. So that statistic for me was actually incredibly encouraging. Uh, I think we can do better than eighty percent, uh, but that's a good start. That's a good start. Um, uh, then the then the last thing was credible strategies for defense and escape. This was really fascinating, um, and it's got me kind of wanting to go further down this rabbit hole, uh, even though I need to just finish up this piece now because we're going to have a, we'll have the second part for tomorrow. But I want to really dig into this whole, how they flooded all this. Cause I, actually, I actually remember some of this vaguely, uh, reading about it sometime in the past, but I'd kind of, for, it had just kind of left my mind. Um, and this is such a fascinating idea, though, that they, they essentially protected all of this with floodplains that they could they could flood in a matter of hours to defend against a invading army army and cryptography is such a powerful tool we just talked about this in the last episode with max hillebrand uh, he had the most succinct explanation of what bitcoin was and i just loved it was it is a tool for self defense it is it is a tool for um, holding value in property that is that is a self-defense mechanism. It is a way to protect it from someone else who wishes to steal it from you. Uh, and Bitcoin is, it's a weapon of self-defense. And I just love that. That's the, that's the, one of the most solid explanations of what its actual use is. Like you can go all day, it's like, oh, it's censorship resistance. Oh, it's independent financial system. It's a court for settling uh, all kinds of smart contracts and blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, what's the point of all that? What do you get out of all that? What, what do all of those hundreds of attributes and benefits and all the things that we talk about really amount to? And that's what it is. It's a, a weapon of self-defense for uh, digital property. And we are going to get into how that... Um, that system of self-defense is going to be utilized and where we are going to see it in the future and how it is going to 
begin to swallow up our financial system in the next part as we continue through the Bitcoin Reformation from Adamant Capital and written by Tur Meester. So don't miss it. We'll go ahead and close this one out here. I have ranted uh, quite a long time. And uh, uh, I'll talk to you guys uh, on the next one. So don't forget, vires in numeris, strength in numbers, don't trust, verify, hodl, not your keys, not your coins, all those great things. This is the Bitcoin Reformation. We are citizens of the crypto economy, citizens of Bitcoin, and uh, a hat tip, Brady, uh, in the Citizen Bitcoin podcast. I love that idea. And uh, yeah, we'll close it out here. Thank you guys so much for listening. Don't forget to follow Turtemeister and Adamant Capital on Twitter. Uh, he is always, the, that, that crew is always producing awesome stuff. Uh, I love Turtemeister's parallels uh, and his diving through history on all these topics. It's just a fascinating thing to talk about and think about. Um, so uh, a huge thank you to him um, for uh give me permission to read all this stuff on the podcast. He always is very enthusiastic about it. And I love that. And, um, and for producing such amazing content always. So thank you to those guys. And, uh, thank you to everyone who listens to the crypto economy with Guy Swan. I love you all. And thank you for going on this journey through Bitcoin and the new parallel economy that is being built and for, uh, being so engrossed just as I am about discovering this thing and, and, and trying to uh, see the future before these things play out, trying to understand where we're going with this thing and how best to prepare and use the tools as we go into a very different and exciting future. So much is going to change, and I think, I truly think that it will be for the better in so many ways. It is simply our obligation to learn how to utilize these tools, how to protect ourselves, uh, what those new tools of self-defense are so that we can make it safely through uh, this transition, through the Bitcoin reformation. So another episode that I want to shout out to um, uh, before we close this one out is Nick Carter's A Most Peaceful Revolution and then the follow-up uh, Revolution in the Protocol those two episodes are very, very much in line with this whole line of thinking and uh, such an awesome, another awesome piece um, that really kind of goes into the dynamics of this whole shift that we're, we're living through. So uh, I'll link to that in the show notes as well. So don't forget to check that out. All right, guys. So uh, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any more of the audible of the Bitcoin space. Share it out with all of your friends in Bitcoin and the crypto economy and everybody who's eager to start their journey down the Bitcoin rabbit hole but is unsure where to start. Point them in my direction. I will be here with the crypto economy. And until next time, take it easy, guys. Thank you.